My name is Deepak Wadhwa. I am the co-founder and CEO of LocoFast. is a $2.5 trillion industry globally with a complex supply chain that includes diverse stakeholders ranging from yarn manufacturers to designers to apparel manufacturers to big brands like H&M and Zara. Locofast is building an asset light fulfillment platform that helps fashion brands to source from small apparel companies. In this episode, your host Akshay Dad is talking with Deepak Vadva, a serial entrepreneur and the founder of Locofast. Deepak started his career with Make My Trip and soon after that jumped into entrepreneurship to build a platform for customers to buy a complete holiday package as compared to other travel sites that were focusing only on flights or hotels. After a roller coaster ride that ended with the business getting acquired, Deepak started his second venture, LocoFast, with an eye on solving problems with a large market opportunity. This conversation starts with Deepak's first venture called VR Holidays and ends with his current startup, LocoFast. Listen on and if you like such insightful conversations with disruptive startup founders, then do subscribe to the Founder Thesis podcast on any audio streaming app. But the fact that I went to make my trip with what I realized that, hey, here is another way of building something out that will really at least keep me excited, keep me happy, and keep me really will basically match my restless quotient in some way. So I think that's really where I decided that, okay, I think I need to start a tech company. I think that's really how the idea really came in. And I was there for about a, nearly a couple of years at Make My Trip. I was very clear that, listen, I want to do now build a company of my own and basically add value and create something afresh. And that was something, yeah. What were you doing at Make My Trip? What was your... I was an early product manager at Make My Trip. I think those were the times when the holiday business of Make My Trip wasn't as large. It was predominantly an air and a hotel business. I joined as one of the early product managers for the holiday business. And it was still where it was simple static website where we were just collecting holiday inquiries. So I think I just joined very early on in that function and the fact that it was an emerging line of business, it was a line of business which had future sort of aspirations company and the aspirations to grow in that segment. I think I then got to really work very closely with some of the really smart people as well as some of the members of the leadership team as well. So in some way, I just was lucky to be at that point in a product management function in a fast-growing internet company to be the same air in terms of being able to work on problems that were extremely challenging, in being able to have some level of confidence and satisfaction in being able to do what I was able to do. So I think that was the click and that was probably the most, the time that I'd been most motivated about. All of us engineering students or graduate students, we, while we get into engineering colleges and management colleges, but very soon we realized that this is not the most exciting thing. But I would say that I think when I was at Makepoint, that was probably the first time in the last five, six years that I think the ex- level of excitement was really high, right? Which was really pointing to that direction that, okay, I think that's really the direction that I want to take up in my life and continue doing that. While at that time, I think back in 2011, 12, the ecosystem wasn't as mature as it is today. We were lucky. Yeah, and that's something I wanted to ask you. What made you quit a, a reasonably well-paying job at a time when 
it was not normal to quit a job and do your startup tell me about that journey from yeah. being employed to well, being yes, to be honest and that's where i got to be absolutely honest i think i came from back where i was still staying with my parents and just one of those typical mental that is just all of us are together there is a backing i have what if it doesn't work out so i would absolutely owe and credit to the fact that i could leave a job and then thought jump into something that is very unknown back then i think the primary reason was that i think i had some backup i think i could always go back to joining my joining my business or even pick up another thing so luckily i didn't have any education loans or i didn't have really any other loans that were going on at that time and i consider myself extremely privileged because i'm sure there are 2 on 10 or 3 on 10 folks out there who have privilege but luckily i had the privilege so the decision wasn't very tough to be honest for my co-founder back then that this was absolutely tough because he didn't have those leverages or he didn't have those things but i think what i've also realized is that i could never become complacent with that questioning right because i was again when you pick up your bag leave in the morning i think you just leave you have to build your own thing bottoms up so i think i was lucky to have that cushion so that i could really not worry about anything and then just go build something that i liked so you were already doing holidays at make my trip yeah. what did you want to do different to be honest and i think continuation to that thought back then 2012 when ecosystem was that as open right i think the entire idea of how you discover the problem how at the end of the day i was still what 27 28 years old ecosystem they were just opening up they wasn't exposed to just too many different business models i think the different thing that we really had was that i think we wanted to build a holiday company which was asset light right predominantly holidays were sold through call centers and retail view back then was that could we really build an asset light company of holidays on the cloud which basically means could you not own or operate any of largely if not a call center driven or a retail store driven sales could you really aggregate a lot of travel agents and mom and pop travel stores that would actually then sell to the customers right so i think that was really the thought it was a b2c marketplace of holidays where we basically wanted customers to come find out the right travel option we match him with the provider on ground and then basically ensure that he had a good experience and we took complete care of end to end responsibility of his vacation going smooth so that was really the core and i think back then most of the otas and more online make my trip and host of other online and offline players were either running call centers or some of them running retail stores to basically and sell holidays so i think that journey was basically trying to create something which is asset light which is more scalable which is more operationally efficient which then could manifest into a large company yeah okay how do you do category management for the product of holidays say for e-commerce i understand category management you will list the sku and the variants the color the size etc etc yeah. how would it happen here could every travel agent upload their own unique itinerary and then the customer would search and see results from 10 different travel agents or would there be standardized itineraries and people would pick and choose one and then you would decide which agent gets to serve it or yeah. tell me a bit about how you executed on this sure. so if you really look at the you look at the holiday product in general right i think a lot of it is a lot of it is just about apart from booking there is a lot of element of discovery in that entire phase right now most of the ecom large part of it is basically booking where you know you want this and then you look amongst 5 10 5 7 10 options 
but in holiday you basically there is a f- far greater element of discovery that is expected to solve for the customer than some of the other e-com platforms right so that's a unique attribute so now you could solve the discovery through online and offline right online could just be just you probably put what you're looking at and then the system gives you generated itineraries and try to drive you through your decision making process or the other is basically you have full people that you speak to or multiple portals that you go to each one of them give you a couple of nuggets unique nuggets and then you put together all of those nuggets and form your holiday right i was while we started with the belief of first the former which is that we could do a lot of that discovery online and digitally but very quickly we realized that i think the discovery to solve discovery through tech was basically restricted and you had to have a mix of technology and human intervention to be able to guide the customer through that entire discovery process so after your question while we did have base level itineraries that our travel agent would put on the platform but a lot of support also came in when the travel agents actually spoke to the customers at length actually managed their requirement actually then built custom itineraries around those gave unique nuggets on how you should really go about spending a couple of days here if not there all of that actually used to be through conversations with the agents so it was a mix of technology plus human intervention both of which would basically help them and guide them through the discovery process and the fact that you were a marketplace where everybody was competing for more business on the platform so by design we obviously had the advantage of getting the best price we had the advantage of getting the best product for our customers at the best possible price so it was often the case that if we lost customer we often lost the customer at a discovery stage but mostly once the customer has discovered then i think the pricing of the platform was such that we were able to actually do a great job of booking for our customers which really solved the problem for customers looking to buy a good option of holiday at the best possible price how did you not get bypassed if you saying the travel agent speaks to the customer directly yeah there, there's that risk of a very interesting question i think my and, and we did obviously like any other person on the other side we debated this in our team like for good 6 months right but the fact of the matter now when i look back i just feel that i think largely people are honest right largely about 95 96% of people are honest probably 3 4% of people would do some sort of thing but then you have to have checks and balances to ensure that it is not a very high percentage of what you do for example we used to do basic things for, such as the number of the customer only gets revealed to you once the customer has shown interest in your product the email that goes to the customer is not from your email id it was possibly a masked email id is probably you only get i mean you call customer from a cloud telephony number and not your direct number so i think there were a lot of intervention that we done back then to ensure that customer was not bypassing and also we used to do a lot of activity on the customer side to tell them that if you bypass we do not have any responsibility of ownership of the holiday if we will ensure that the money is paid to the agent once you come back which means that any services lack that you might have you can always come and address so i just felt we did a constant education on both these sides along with intervent technology interventions 3 4 of which i mentioned but honest to say was there a 1 or 2% pilferage absolutely but i just felt that overall the business was more scalable overall the business made far more sense 
to actually have some of these people talk directly to the customer because i think the customer need was to actually answer all his question for something that he's going to buy once in a year spend about a couple of lakh rupees right so i just felt that the problem was there now it's up to us on how to address it but we just can't ignore the problem and then be stuck on the fact that we don't want our agents to talk to our customers i think we were very in some way we were consumer first and we felt that i think we should do what's best for the customer even though we run the risk of pilferage but then i think these are some of the business problems that you solve and which is really make everything so interesting then human tendency is to bypass what sort of tools that processes do you have so that these don't happen and what was your take rate in it what was the economics like equal we started with about a 4 and a half 5% and would go on to be about 9 and a half 10% Okay, which is small enough so that an agent would not want to jeopardize that relationship with you. Because I think a customer would probably not a lakh and a half for eight thousand. It was like twelve thousand rupees, right? Because that was a lot of money, right? So I don't think. I think the average size of the transaction was very high. So I think the incentive was definitely there, but I think the fact that as an agent you get blacklisted from the platform, and as an agent you then do not get any further business. I think. the cost of bypassing that was huge enough for the agent to actually do that but we did have one or two agent that came to our notice of having done that but that really happened then on marketplace i don't remember i even remember back then when flipkart or amazon started to basically call up the seller and actually confirm that is it the seller that is selling this product right and all of us have done that in our early days right but i think in hindsight i feel we often overmine the pilferage or overmine the ability of a vendor to call up customer directly on a direct transaction i think we just tend to overthink that aspect mostly if there are fair dealings on the platform mostly if as a platform you are fair in your dealing in terms of commissions and payments then i think there is little less incentive for some of these people to actually buy okay so what was a bigger challenge for you was it building up supply which means onboarding the travel agents who would list inventory or was it building up demand which is attracting customers who would buy on the always supply right? i think it always always supply right i think demand is still my view of marketplace is that if you build quality supply customers will come any marketplace where you have quality supply customers exist customer want to get the best product at the best price so the demand exists it's not that to create the demand so absolutely supply hands down was the hardest thing to create and back then getting people to adopt product getting people to adopt technology trust asking people to take money after the holiday has been availed were some of the really hard things that we had to do and that was really the process of building supply can you elaborate more on how you built supply what were the things you did like how did you get your first 100 agents on board i'm assuming it must have been very manual initially and then you would have productized it and so i'd love to hear about that journey yeah so i think look for us we believe we have we still love I mean, it here as well we had a great team that was really close knit and where it basically everything just starts with an excel and a google right where you start looking for agents and start talking to them on the phone so i think you probably build a database of all the agents out there call them up even have somebody on ground to go visit them so we would create a database have a research team call them explain the value prop somebody would go down on ground meet that agent start feeding some inquiries to the agent and basically get the first couple of transactions done what we realized was that the maximum churn 
happens in the first week 10 days of onboarding and if within a week 10 days you're able to get him a transaction or two is where the customer where the vendor really sticks to the platform and where we found tremendous amount of value in being able to work really closely with them to show them success on the platform and i think once you show them two three four transactions when most of those guys then become self participative they adopt technology they are willing to work out the commission structure they are willing to address quality issues they are willing to not bypass all of those things just automatically falls in place i think the most the value of that in some way is the first couple of transaction of first four five transactions that any particular player on the marketplace actually ends up doing so i think that's really was very clear we were very clear we had a separate hunting and a farming thing which basically meant that our guys would actually special focus was attributed on vendors that had to be hunted within that first week 10 days 15 days of time frame where we would ensure that they get their first transaction and once we became on the transaction is when we basically have them move on to the other team which is the farming team no so uh, you are onboarding a travel agent and a holiday is a very high touch kind of an experience if something goes wrong it could be even something very minor but the negative feedback would be massive how did you ensure that quality is met because you don't necessarily have a lot of data about who's a good agent who's not a good agent in the initial days and because the cost of a mistake would be very high here so i think there are different ways of and very good question applicable to all marketplaces right so definitely you have to take a leap of faith right i would like to say that you don't have to take a leap of faith because you have to get the flywheel going right you have to get the flywheel of demand and supply going because if that flywheel doesn't operate then basically the marketplace is actually a cold start you have the cold start problem right how do you really stop this thing right to begin with absolutely i think you just try to look at any small thing we would our team would go to a travel agent and try to see okay what's the size of his office the number of people sitting in his office uh, is it a rented place or is it a owned place what are the reviews of that very interesting you would actually see does the travel agent have a website how what is the quality of the website is it a private limited company is it a proprietorship company what sort of a turnover does the agent have everything that one could gather from secondary as well as primary sources is basically building this image in your mind if he's a qualified agent or he's not a qualified agent but even after those checks would we have scenario where somebody would come on the platform who really didn't cut the quality or the delivery sla absolutely we had that but were we able to get our arms around it and actually solve it for the customer absolutely and that was really where we had a customer success team that would work very closely with our agents very closely with our customers and any experience deficiency or anything which they basically didn't do as per plan used to basically get addressed with topmost priority because we understood that the product we were selling is a product where if you do a great job then yes the customer would be a customer for life but if you did not really do a good job then rest be sure that not only he is not going to come back he is going to probably tell 15 of his friends to not never come and book a holiday so definitely think the nature of the product was such the nature of the transaction was such that we had to be very certain that customer success ability to give a good experience really had 
a top sort of was on top agenda for us as a team and how did you fund this you would have probably needed funds right from the start to build a product to build a team which is doing the onboarding and before you start earning enough take rate to yeah. meet your expenses so how did that happen we did start with some of our own money to begin with right very small money but we were lucky to get a seed round within the first one year since starting out i think we raised a seed round with bunch of investors ventures mumbai angels bunch of other notable angel investors came along in the journey to answer the question we are extremely lucky to basically not having to spend a lot of our own money because obviously we were out of jobs we really didn't have the money but we were able to basically attract investment at the right time so we had we were lucky to not having to invest a lot from our own pockets in india and within the first year we were able to attract angel investment and then invest that into building our product tech and sales teams so i would say that i think we were just lucky to get in get capital just in the nick of time for us to not having to spend we were out of job we didn't have a lot of money ourselves so i think yeah, back then i think i consider i'm extremely thankful to our early backers right and i think back then like i said ecosystem wasn't as mainstream as it is now so for us to basically raise capital within 12 months of inception was basically big deal right so i i thank all the people that believed in us back then back us and get the venture going and how much did you raise in total like throughout the duration we raised a lot of money in fact we raised about not more than we did but very little 2.5 million or dollars we raised okay okay yeah, yeah. Uh, and why is that were the unit economics good enough or did you keep a tight control on costs was the customer acquisition cost low or? i'll tell you we had an acquisition later on right beyond a cd we had an acquisition right and uh, which year was this the acquisition This was in 2016, 17 actually, 2017. Okay, okay. 17. We had the acquisition, right? We obviously till now, if you see, and in retrospect, it's been five years since we exited the business, right? We just feel that there is still an opportunity to build a large holiday company in the country, but there isn't any till now, right? There isn't any. There is a large air tickets company. There is a large hotel company. there is a large bus ticket company there is a large cab company but there is really no large holiday company and i think there are if i were to look back and obviously some of these are more my personal experience may not be entirely true i'm sure and obviously this is hindsight again hindsight 2020 right you often obviously look back i think one of the core reasons is that a lot of online travel agents which are the likes of make my trip and some of the other otas are actually able to acquire customer a lot cheaply through the air ticket funnel right basically mean that the fact that they will always be able to acquire customers cheaply or cheaper than you means that you forever not have the luxury of actually acquiring customer cheaper than the large OTA right point number 1 point number 2 is that the frequency of the purchase is really once in a year which then means that the flywheel of customer acquisition it's not like cab but the fact that you need it once in a year makes it even more difficult for you to actually get the customer back at a cheaper cost again even though you may have given him a good experience or you may have given her a good experience and third of all the fact that we were a marketplace which means that the services that we were getting rendered to the customer weren't really our own services in a way they were a part of the marketplace which then said our ability to influence the service levels were very limited the service experience like you could still the cab could be cleaner the cab would smell better the driver could be well mannered 
the driver could follow traffic rules. You could make some of these alterations, cab business, but you cannot really make those alterations in a holiday business, especially when customer spends a lot of duration on a holiday. Along with that, it is an extremely high involvement product. Just that the fact that, that the business was on marketplace or the model was a marketplace model, we could not really hugely influence the quality of the services rendered to the customer on ground, which meant that were customers happy, they were happy, but that but the happiness wasn't really translating into repeat purchase because you would only go once in a year. And that was really the question that we could never answer for ourselves because the nature of the product along with customer acquisition really didn't make it like a flywheel that would escape, get to escape velocity and then it'll go on its own. So I think that's really the core, my and our sort of our experience, our, our experience and our view of running a business for good four or five years where we realized that I think that's really how it is to say that can somebody build an extremely large holiday company? Absolutely, the opportunities still exist. But I think some of the challenges that we faced or some of the thesis we got built out was basically the thesis that I'm just telling you, right, about the product and the customer acquisition. Yeah, so what is the way to build a large company then? Own the whole thing? Have If I were to, if your question is, if I were to do it again, uh, I think somewhere if you see while you may pick up a niche, but I think within that niche, you have to ensure that you're able to influence the service levels and of the customer. But what Airbnb is able to do, for example? So the fact that they started out, it was a niche. It appeared to be a niche, but then it became mainstream like how. So I think holidays typically, and I don't know if you've seen or heard the Airbnb story, right? The fact that it was just so counterintuitive back then to basically have a stranger come to your house and stay is the reason why it is such a large company today, right? I just feel holiday is that kind of a product, right? And that's why it's more complex. I think it would require, it requires a great amount of customer understanding. It requires a great amount of ecosystem understanding. And when I say ecosystem, it is in general the hospitality ecosystem, right? The cab, the activities, the hotels, the transfers, the ferry transfers. There's just so much within that. There's just so many moving variables, right? Which is that if you think of a niche, I think you do a far better job in a niche than going all out because then while you may acquire customers, you will never be able to retain them long enough because the level of services rendered through your platform or through your partners will actually be pretty similar to what he or she gets elsewhere. So while you may have saved some money for customers to book through the platform, but is that really enough for him to come back is really the question that one should ask building this. But to be honest, yes, I think it is a tough market to break in. I think we haven't seen a large company getting built out there. For a lack of my knowledge, I may be wrong as well. I'm sure there's somebody building that. But for us, that's what our understanding of the business was, is that if you operate in a niche and then influence the level of services, either by, if not operating it directly, but at least the relationship has to be tighter in a manner that you could actually give a much better level of services to the mm-hmm. customer. Mm-hmm. That so you're, you're essentially saying that Airbnb has more bargaining power 
because they started in a niche and hence they were able to influence the hosts and as they scaled then obviously scale also gives you bargaining power initially the niche gave them bargaining power later scale gave them bargaining power to influence service quality i think the most beautiful like i said i think just one of the most counterintuitive company that have been built out there right so i think any analysis that one does is just wrong because it was so counterintuitive right but i just feel i think the fact that they could create supply which never existed is the most beautiful part of the business right we all of us just look at the existing supply try to build a tech layer on that try to set processing is try to get a better outcome through marketplaces give them technology give them logistic give them credit but the fact that they could fundamentally think of just a fresh pool of supply which nobody ever has thought is just the most amazing reason why it's just massively successful and i think then you really are not basically operating like a travel company then i think you basically could be like you could actually influence the service levels of the customer because the host then again does not operate like a hotel a host is an individual right and then you are able to actually create a by design it there is choice and variety on the platform because each host will do up his house differently you will have houses across different geographies across different terrains and you know you'll have choice by design because every host is different and every room is different and every property is different and then if you are basically able to then ensure that whatever gets promised gets delivered on ground and then as long as the stay is safe as long as person gets i think i'm sure you stayed and so have i i think mostly it's been a good experience right? mostly it's been a good experience right obviously they have share of challenges and all of those things but i think the reason why they have become massively successful is that they were able to just tap into a supply which just never existed in the first place which is really what is the most beautiful part of building airbnb and why i feel the founders are probably once in a century kind of founders that would actually go on to leave their jobs and basically max their credit card out for an idea which looked just so counterintuitive to begin with yeah yeah that's true yeah that's an amazing insight okay and what was the reason for cox and king to acquire like they wanted a marketplace because well, they had their own general, in-house i think in general obviously in general a large offline travel strategy would not have the tech or the product dna in general i think the starting point of our association with them was that they just never had the tech and the product dna so i think integrating a sort of an agile team like ours would basically help them catch up or at least build products that were basically directed at digital products to their users they were back then obviously one of the most distinguished name they already had the customer base they already had the supply parts and they were the hospitality company in true sense which is the offline thing us coming into the umbrella basically meant that they could ship out digital products faster us coming into the umbrella meant that we could give ancillary services that we could build ancillary products on top of their current ecosystem so that they could have a better customer experience and better customer retention that was the sort of the 10000 feet view of how we got aligned with the last travel strategic and then basically got with them very closely okay okay so you know once you got acquired then what next did you i guess there must have been a lock in period and yeah and mostly and obviously i think most of these things do have lock in periods right so definitely we did have that we were associated with them for a little over a year if i'm not wrong 
and as we'd expected i think we very quickly realized that i think it is not going to be the place where we with everything with everything in place i think but just that i think very different dnas i think no right or wrong it's just different dnas and then we probably thought it okay i think we probably need to get on and see what's out there and by that time if you see things were beginning to sprung up i think things were beginning to in shape the ecosystem was maturing capital was becoming more mainstream companies were getting started a lot more there were a lot of first second founders so i just felt that the ecosystem was a very 2017 mid and 18 was an extremely exciting time at least from a capital perspective and from just in general business models just in general new companies emerging just in general different areas that were getting touched through technology so i just feel that was the time when you know and as the inkling goes right i mean we the time that we spent with them obviously the pace of work was not as what we had in our own sort of company so which basically meant that we were in itching to go back and get more get more work on ideas that excite us work on something which was bigger all of that was basically there right while it was a good welcome there in a half of kind of a period where we could just just take a breather and then take a stock of the situation before really refueling and getting started with the journey all over again and i just felt that's the reason we basically then were more energized to start all over again did you get enough of a cash exit to fund your next startup or i think and enough yes and but i was very certain that i think the fact that we already done one i think raising capital would not be as hard i think one of the thing that i was not too worried about i was very worried about what to work on what's the product market fit what's the team going to be like but i think the thing that i was least worried about is raising capital because i knew that i think if i've done it once then i think it would obviously i knew the people in the ecosystem so yeah i think it would not be as hard so at least i was aware that at least the first couple of rounds i think should not be any challenge because i just have been around and i've just known people and have executed a business to give that confidence that yes i could build something even more worthwhile so i think that was never a concern but definitely there was again element like in any i think second time founders or whatever third time founders i just feel at least that element of self doubt that element of what to work on that element of product market fit all of those are just problems that one has to face and there is just no replacing those problems right while you get better at hiring teams you get better at retaining teams you get better at raising capital you get better at executing product road maps but i mean in terms of anything which is exploratory in terms of finding the idea in terms of the exact niche to go after in terms of all of that is again it's just very unique to every business like how do sure, so yeah so i tell you uh, like i said i feel to be living in a joint family or living with parents right they don't understand the meaning of sabbatical they don't understand that listen you had you know take a year easy you know take a year and a half easy before you start out right for them probably in a week's time they will start considering okay what next now when you want to be because for them sabbatical is like being unemployed right you sitting at home nothing it's being unemployed right so i just felt i think that was probably push me to my father would often tell me why don't you come to my manufacturing facility and see what's happening there and i think is is he got the opportunity and he was very happy to find me without work and that's okay you know, i could make some good use of this guy who seemingly seemed to know a lot of things that i don't so he would often take me to his manufacturing facility and then ask me to add wherever value that i can 
and I probably did that for like good six eight months or at least or even more probably an year and I think that was really where if you see the and we are like a typical SME if some of the listeners or if you ever you know it's a very different sort of an area right it's very it's far away from the typical VC funded slanky offices and you probably burn more than you earn it's a very different ecosystem and I just felt that it was probably the best thing I could have done I don't think I could have done anything because that was probably the first time that I had been to his to his office because I was a part of one industry and what I realized is that mostly SMEs across industries have similar sort of problems I had my friend I come from Faridabad like I said half a dozen of my friends run some SME or the other somebody is manufacturer for steel fabrication somebody does some rubber fabrication somebody I was into plastic somebody else did some other metal so I basically once I was there I would probably go to their workplace and I pretty much found similar sort of in a way they were similar way of functioning they just had how they operate was very similar and that was the most fascinating part of it where actually you could understand the SME really in and out right just feel that I was lucky enough one I've been born in that city two I have friends that run those means I have uncles I have my own father there would have been no better coaching right I wish I had this coaching before I started my first venture <laughs> but I there wasn't a better time but there wasn't a better way of getting coached right because it was just and anybody who runs an SME anybody who runs a business back then a lot of those people don't understand how some of these VC funded businesses or some of these funded businesses work is because it's fundamentally very different on how things operate. To give you three, four very practical examples, one is there is just an element of trust on how they do transactions, right? Their material procurement, their delivery, all happens on trust, right? And that's something which, you know, in a society like ours, we don't, right? For us here, when we run a company, we have agreements, we have everything, agreement, customer agreement. So it just feels that just very different world right and in terms of every small thing the most amazing way is how they control cost right the way they're able to control cost and the way where every cent or every rupee that they spent is actually measured it's such a phenomenal i mean we typically cost talk about revenue per employee i think some of the smes would really do a great job on that because if you really see the way some of their cost structures are managed is extremely important it's extremely beautiful to see and that really makes them hugely successful and by design I feel a lot of them are extremely successful for the reason because they have that fundamental aspect of keeping cost under control of thinking long term right I think long term thinking in SME right my father runs this business for the last 35 years 40 years doing the same thing and imagine I mean just imagine how to build a company if you were to do I begin to realize that if you spend that kind of time doing anything you'll be successful right I think the fact that SMEs do this for a long time makes them really successful right I think there was some really the fact that how they would aggressively do sourcing for their raw material right how aggressively they would they would drive down a couple of percentage points on the commission right how aggressively they would attend to customer complaints if there were a customer complaint, right? I think these are some really good lessons to learn. And I just feel probably the most satisfying part of my sabbatical period was actually I got really good training and really good insights into how an SME works. And I think for me, 
that was yeah okay so uh, what was the the gap you identified you you must have seen an opportunity in the sme sector yeah. i think opportunity is everywhere right? i mean i think in sme when you touch sme there opportunity everywhere right i think the opportunity that i think i was very clear one is obviously the op- so one okay the two things that really came out very clearly one is how the logistics was still very broken right okay logistics from me to customer or sme to customer or sme procurement i think logistics of that was completely broken right two i think procurement in general we felt was broken right procurement was always at spot rates procurement was always at the rates which are in the private in the market today procurement was always happening once there is a fresh order placed from the customer so always the case when as smes that would keep very limited inventory they will always go procure when they have an order in hand which then made the procurement extremely inefficient because there was a lot of intermediary involvement there was a lot of information asymmetry there was a lot of quality asymmetry that one would run into so i just felt the two north stars that really came out while i was there i think logistics as a problem for smes plus i guess procurement is something that really stood out and procurement is something which i felt was one of the areas that i would be interested in spending the next 8 10 years of my life and i think procurement yes i think that's really where it came from procurement as a horizontal really came out right yes hmm. uh, by problems in logistics you mean say there's no say how as a consumer you have uber which can give you an instant logistics uh, for your personal transport the smes didn't have something like that is, is that what you mean yeah no definitely i think the fact that and i'll tell you what used to typically happen right you basically call a you call a gadi from the aggregator and the guy would not pick up your phone the guy he would send would probably come half an hour because you know typically i'll tell you what happens in a, in in every sme right the dispatches start in the morning right if you manufacture through the night the goods and the goods are now ready to be shipped right and on most of the industrial clusters everybody wants a gadi at 10 10 30 11 in the morning right now what happens because of that is that definitely the customer that is on a credit will not get preference the customer in cash will get preference somebody staying a couple of extra bucks gets the credit gets the service so there were these typical issues of failure to be able to ship the goods in time and get that gadi on the gate at 10 o'clock in the morning and there was a lot of failure into that and everything was selling because once it starts at 10 if it has to cover the ncr then the no entry would start the customer would not deliver the goods after a particular time of the day the next shipment would get delayed their invoice will not get paid the day the gadi has to come back and then go the next day so there were fundamentally issues where i could see within where i was working at least there were two three individuals in the team that would forever be haggling with the gadi guy in the why the material is not really time right and it was everything is just imagine the guy having to come back and go the next day and that was like it was a big deal for a gadi to come back and go the next day because there is an extra cost incurred to that just feel like overall the level of activity around logistics was extremely high which made me realize that i think the problem is really out there which is a delivery that can be done at a certain time of a day without failure and ensure that the material is inverted to the customer in time so that the money then starts from there in and there is no wastage around that okay okay got it and from a procurement perspective some of the things that you said like they buy once they get an order on the spot what is the problem in that this is like normal business practice right yeah so i'll tell you uh, typically what happens is mostly if you see smes are typically looking at 
credit as one of the core attributes, right? When they purchase the product. So there are two types of SMEs, right? One SME, okay, to be honest, I have myself seen that some of my friends that are there actually have slightly longer working capital cycle, so they always optimize credit, correct? And there's a pair of uncles that I have that run a similar business, but they want the best price, right? So there are two sides to the coin, which is that one is optimizing for the best price and other optimizing for the best working capital terms, right? Again, at a cost, right? What's the cost of that? And that's where I felt that as your number of SKUs grew, as the product became complex, then a lot of information and credit asymmetry started seeping into your quoted price, right? For example, if I call you for a product, for example, back in those simple, back in those days when we, I mean, I come from Make My Trip for most of my every second example that I could have travel example. The fact that how a Make My Trip democratized the rates of the airlines on a single platform, right? There actually exists no democratization of procurement in any of the industry we're talking about, right? It was always the same thing. You would call up three travel agents and ask for the flight rate. Here you'll call up three different traders and ask for the same product rate, right? I just feel things remain the same. In an industry which got impacted by tech the very first, which is travel, I think the same, I was able to draw the same parallel, but I was never able to find a similar solution that why do procurement have to be so hard? Why couldn't I have a make my trip kind of an interface that gives me the best price? And then once I basically make a booking, ensure that the product reaches to me at the desired timeline and at the desired price at my doorstep, right? I think even today, vast procurement across SMEs, across all industries, is still driven through the telephone and the paper and the WhatsApp and the process of placing a purchase order, the process of getting an invoice, the process of getting a bill generated, the process of getting the logistic details, the process of getting the material to your doorstep is actually a very painful process. Okay, and so th- those workflows are all manual, right? Absolutely, and they are manual even now as we speak because such is the might of the industry, such is the size of the industry that I think there could probably be about 50 tech companies that could actually do it and there would still be more to do. I just feel that's really the problem, which is that the entire workflows are completely broken. The entire workflows are analog. The entire workflows are... And what happens because of that is that there's a lot of losses that happen from one state to the other. There are losses, there is... And then whenever something like that happens, it's often if you see intermediaries or offline intermediaries then tend to come in and then basically play the role and really see then a human is basically playing the role of becoming that comforting factor to ensure that the goods are delivered to you right that's how the trader community in general thrives which is that they bridge trust on both the sides it bridges which i was talking earlier they bridges trust on either side it bridges the credit exposure on each of these sides because one party doesn't really know the other third it also ensures that there is risk mitigation, which is ability to be able to arrange material when it's not available, ability to be able to provide material when it's not available, ability to provide capital when it's not available. Are some of these reasons why, in the traditional sense, along with SMEs, large part of SMEs continue to procure through intermediaries, right? And most of the manufacturers are actually large guys, commodities, the large manufacturers in a different geography, right? 
and for an SME based in a certain place, it's very difficult to, while he may know that an ex party or an ex manufacturer would provide me the goods, but it's very difficult to deal. And even for a manufacturer, instead of dealing with 100 different SMEs at one time, why would they basically not have an agent or an intermediary or a trader in between sometime to basically ensure that the business on either side, it disintermediates, it actually is for the manufacturer and is able to provide services to each of these SMEs, right? And which is typically business has been done for the last 50 years, right? Okay. So your thesis was to build a platform, uh, like say uh, a Flipkart for fashion industry, like say Pantaloons or any of these uh, fashion companies. Anybody, can... anybody would want to come who wants to procure bulk fabric could come on a platform, basically place an order and get the delivery of the fabric in the fastest possible time at the best product, at the best possible price and at the best possible quality. I think those were really the larger sort of themes that we actually had. And like I said, I think in some way we wanted to disintermediate the entire supply chain where we wanted to basically have manufacturers and customers on one single platform rather than multiple layers of agents or traders in between. And you've all heard the maximum number of intermediaries are actually in textiles. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, if you what is the traditional supply chain in textiles? Traditional supply chain is that you have a fabric manufacturer who would basically be based out of pieces. The type of fabric he or she makes would be based in a certain geography in the country, right? If you're selling silk. These people would be buying like raw cotton or yeah. whatever viscose or whatever they need from. And then make a fabric out of it. These guys are typically based out of tier two, tier three towns in India. If you want silk, you go to Banaras. If you want cotton, you go to someplace in Maharashtra. If you want rayon, you go to someplace in Tamil Nadu. That's really how textile is basically scattered. The clusters of textile are scattered as such. And then these are typically, again, SMEs, right? With lack of access of working capital, no market intelligence, ability to not be able to acquire customers themselves, fall off for payment, fall off for quality, fall off for logistics. A classic case where very difficult for some of these guys to actually operate business from a demand side. While they're great at manufacturing the product, but very difficult for them to go market this product in an extremely new and different geography. That's where the traders would come in, I'm guessing, in the supply chain. Traders would basically come in, buy the buy the entire product lot from them and then connect them to demand pockets, connect them to customers, connect them to brand and basically get them business. And over a period of time, that trader become the de facto choice for these manufacturers because of all the challenges that I said, it just makes far more sense for them to basically take support of a trader and start selling. Similarly, on the demand side, mostly as these two activities are in different geographies, you would again have a trader that talks to a trader in a demand pocket and then the trader in the demand pocket talks to the SME in the demand pocket which is typically how at the bare minimum two or sometimes four or five agents actually are involved in one single transaction which is really where the price of the product goes up, quality of the product goes down the lead time to get the product delivered goes reduces up. The overall supply chain becomes far more inefficient. A lot of change of hands, a lot of movement of material from one warehouse to the other. Within that, everybody keeps a share of their pie. Ultimately, what happens is that the product gets, the end customer gets, is either expensive 
or if it is competitive, then I think from a quality standpoint, it has to be inferior quality. And who manufactures garments? You're talking of garments here, right? Yes. Uh, are there like large players, say a future group? which is into fashion retail do they manufacture on their own or they work with SMEs and work with both both we have both where some of these brands would work directly with us some of the brands would work with us through contract manufacturers so we have both the scenarios where we work with some of the brands directly and some of the brands in sort of partnership with their contract manufacturers right so in both of these and then we make this process extremely streamlined for some of these people to procure at the most competitive price, at the best quality, and in the fastest possible time. Got it. Okay. How did you do the category management here? What is the... Are there like different types of fabrics and there would be infinite amount of patterns and colors? And so how did you productize something like this? Productized is like any other project management thing where the person actually ends up uploading a design file or a specification file or what he's actually looking at. And then the same file is actually pushed to a lot of our vendors on the platform. And then each one of them comes back with a quotation for that particular product. And then we basically come into in project management on how the goods have to be delivered to the customer in time. But it's actually just like any other market, like a zero inventory marketplace where everything is custom made. And anytime a customer floats an RFP is where it gets connected to a manufacturer and the manufacturer basically then submits a timeline and the pricing for the product and the order then gets assigned to him and then once he starts production we help our vendors with working capital support logistics is completely operated but not operated managed by us and our customer quality concerns are addressed by us in a nutshell we are a full fully managed marketplace for all fabric requirements that the brands or their affiliates might have. The difference between a regular marketplace is that it's not people uploading their inventory, but it's built to order. So it means that it is demand-led. Like first, the demand for a particular design or a type of fabric comes in, and then you would float it out to your marketplace vendors and get a quotation from them. Like, how does it work? Give me an example of... I think for us... the industry that we're talking about, right? I think the industry is fashion, is very fast. You need to you need to get the product as soon as possible, right? And the fact that fabric procurement is about two-thirds of the time that it takes to ship out the finished garment means that you have to be the most operationally efficient and your supply chain has to be the most nimble when you're really looking at that part of the business. So the problem statement is that, right? Because at the end of the day, stitching is a fairly manual job, right? You can stitch garment, but if you do not really have the material, what are you going to stitch? Which is one of those things, right? And for us, what our tech platform does is that it basically does matching through AI of the product that is required to the best manufacturer on the platform that can be discovered based on the type of the asset, the utilize the current utilization the competency, the timelines, and his ability to deliver an order of that magnitude is really what is decided through technology. And that's where we build, capture a lot of data points, both from our supply side, especially. Their size, their capacity, the meters they could manufacture, the timeline, their source of purchasing, like you said, raw cotton or yarn, their source of availing credit, our quality parameters, how does a quality check happens, in terms of visibility of production real-time for our customers, right? I think there is just 
so many data points that we capture from our supply side which basically means that we are able to make the best match of a customer requirement because understand if the customer does not get it in time probably going to lose two and a half or three times the amount of money on that raw material if he doesn't really get the product in time so i think at the operationally speaking it is all a lot of data point that we capture on our supply side and then a real time matching through technology with the requirement on the platform that finds out the best match of the manufacturer for that product quality and especially when there are just a lot of sks right like we discussed every type of fabric is different the width of fabrics are different the metrage of the fabric is different it just fundamentally means that if you really do not have technology there is just no way in the world you can actually make a matching because like we like you mentioned it's not that the supply guys are uploading their products and then we are showing that to the customers right it's more where we do a match making between the order with the particular manufacturer and that is really where technology is actually leveraged the most today and yeah we have a lot of our tech team is probably our second largest team with a bunch of guys that are doing some good data science work and are actually able to run a lot of intelligent algorithms on top of the base data that we get from our supply so i think that's really the clear magic that we built out on the platform to actually find the right manufacturer for a particular order but i think the real question in in fashion in general is about the style and the design right and who gets it fastest to the shelf right so time is of essence right and i think when time is of essence then how do you really keep up the requirement of a brand in terms of what he wants and then be able to deliver that through a marketplace is actually the most challenging part and actually where most of the technology is actually gets leveraged right all of us know fashion is fast all of us know a lot of skus but how do we really deliver that in some other part of the country to somebody else is really where the problem becomes far more exciting yeah in some way that is really how we go about it so you spoken of the value of the matching algorithm which helps you identify the right vendor you would however i'm guessing also need more inputs to really make it like a winning platform for example credit or for example the vendor's own workflows of when he places the order what stage is the order at getting visibility into what's happening on the vendor end talk to me about some of those things like so absolutely obviously all our sme generally are credit staff right there are their hindrances to their growth has always been working capital right so i think as a platform we do we do have a platform where we have nbsc that come on a platform and the way we envisage this platform is that suppliers will come to look for good customers customers will come to look for good vendors borrowers will uh, lenders will come to figure out good borrowers right like that's really how we build this right the platform has to be about that each one actually comes to the platform in an anticipation that the other party is an equally qualified and an equally good business ethic party and I can engage with them on the platform right and that's really the view so to that absolutely we have bunch of nbfc partners that we how does the credit happen do you give it as soon as an order is placed or after delivery where instead of getting paid in say you have an advance amount because it's just one of those things the guy actually has to go procure raw material for the because order because bill to order so generally yeah, there's an advance that's basically right. have an advance for that 
and then once the quality is matched then you pay the remaining amount and then the goods delivered to the customer so it's actually two parts an advance followed by a finished thing yeah what is the role of the nbfcs here like like they extend a, a higher advance amount or they help them like in in getting the invoice paid faster bill discounting or both of the things happen right both the things happen both things happen yes and typically they have different products that they offer on the platform and the most common is basically invoice discounting right okay and how do you get visibility into what's happening at the vendors yes, uh, i think our workflow, yeah i think our workflow has been divided into multiple steps right and each of those steps in some way are connected to our mobile app that our suppliers have they are able to update the real time status of every step and the same status is actually visible to the customer so i think we are going to move that basically to a more intuitive on grab applications where it becomes a lot easier for our suppliers to actually punch in data and then manage the entire production workflows on the ground itself so then we basically thinking of building a lot of suites of products suites of product to manage the entire workflow and not just our workflow right give me like help me understand this like what this would be like a manufacturing erp that yes some sort of yes absolutely that's really the vision of it right because sometimes when you're a manufacturer you have to basically change your habit of man- managing the entire production on one single platform rather than just managing your production on your platform right so i think we built that entire thing out for him to be able to actually manage the entire production on the app which then makes it far more easy for him to in fact derive value on how the entire thing flows what are the workflows which client order is getting punched when what is the delivery date of the order what advance amount have i received what is the remaining amount all of those basically is just visible to him through one single click that's really the vision that's still work in progress for us but the vision really is that customer gets complete there's a lot of value for the customer in getting real time updates and status updates of what is being manufactured and i just think that is really the core element of what we built so today yes our customers do get real time updates of the status of their product at each stage starting from the point they sort of place an order to the point they actually deliver the consignment yes okay absolutely and that brings us to the end of this conversation i want to ask you for a favor now did you like listening to the show i'd love to hear your feedback about it do you have your own startup ideas i'd love to hear them do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in the show i'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests write to me at ad@thepodium.in at that's ad@thepodium.in at